0: You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit CAC.org.
1: I remember the moment back in the 1990s when I first learned about global warming. I'd heard about the danger of nuclear winter, but never global warming. One Sunday at church, I preached about environmental stewardship, uh, and I uh, lived in a college town, and we had a lot of students, and a student, came up to me and she said, I noticed you didn't mention global warming. I said, I never heard of it. She sent me a link and that link took me online to a a little video of the Arctic ice sheet shrinking. And I couldn't unsee what I saw. I became more and more knowledgeable about global warming, climate change, and eventually became something of an environmental activist doing all I can to help people understand and respond. But I know that whenever I talk about global warming or global climate change, uh, I'm working against two things. First, catastrophe bias. Uh, Our brains are wired to set a baseline of normalcy and assume what feels normal has always been and will always remain. As a result, we minimize threats and are vulnerable to disasters if they develop slowly. Um, Global warming and climate change is perfectly designed for our catastrophe bias to dismiss. But that's not all, we also face cash bias. Our brains are wired to see within the framework of our economy and we see what helps us make money. It's very hard to see anything that interferes with our way of making money. I can't help but think of one of Jesus' most confrontational sayings from Luke 16. He said, no slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Basically, Jesus is saying, living in an an economy that where slavery was the norm in the Roman Empire, Uh, something that everybody would understand. If you have two different people ordering you around, um, you're going to figure out which one you love and which one you love less or hate. And then Jesus says, listen, if you love money, you will hate God. And if you love God, you will hate money. Now, when I think of the power of money through cash bias, It actually makes me hate money for how it blinds us to so much of reality. And suddenly, Jesus' words don't seem extreme. They make perfect sense. We do not see everything, so we do not know everything. We do not even know how much we do not know. Nor do we know how much of what we know is actually impartial, distorted, or false. That is why we seek to open our eyes, to encounter the world afresh, in humility and in silent wonder, to learn to see.
2: Thanks, Brian. Wow. We have our work cut out for us in this episode because these two biases are really, really powerful and they hit really close to home, especially in 2021. So let's start with that catastrophe bias. Our brains are wired to set a baseline of normalcy and assume what feels normal has always been and will always remain. As a result, we minimize threats and become vulnerable to disasters, especially ones that develop slowly. Brian, you also call this normalcy or baseline bias. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. So
1: uh, our, our brains are wired for efficiency, and we like to assume that what it, it seems normal will always be. Uh, so uh, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, we had a lot of political turmoil, and we thought, well, this could never lead to violence. This could never lead to an attempt to overthrow an election. And then on January sixth, it did. Or we say, oh, listen, summer. Uh, fall, winter, spring, seasons always come and they're always consistent. Um, but uh, guess what? Climates can change and you can find out that what you assumed was normal wouldn't be normal. I can give a, a, a great example from my own childhood. And I, you guys might be able to remember this too, even though you're a good bit younger than me. But when I was a boy, anytime you took a drive in the summer, your car windshield would be covered with squashed bugs. Your headlights would be covered. The whole front grill of your car would be covered. And for a lot of people today, they have never, ever seen that because over in my lifetime, there's been this thing called the great global insect die- die-off. And somewhere estimates between 30 and 60% and more of insects just have disappeared. And, um, and so, but but for somebody who grows up today... This level of insects is normal. And if they decline even more, the next generation will assume that's normal. And so things that change over a certain span of time, we miss. That's, and that, that leads us uh, vulnerable to catastrophe bias. Uh, we, you may have heard the saying, uh, a, per, a cat that sits on a hot stove will never sit on a hot stove again but they will never sit on a cold stove either. (laughs) And the idea is the sudden catastrophe makes such an impression. Our brains are wired to remember we're traumatized by sudden catastrophes, but the slow going ones we very easily miss. So can you all think of other examples of catastrophe, normalcy, baseline bias?
2: Right off the bat, it makes me think of the psychological principle of homeostasis. Which is that whatever we consciously think, unconsciously we really just want things to be stable and stay the same, and that that kind of uh, contemporary bit of wisdom that that we usually don't change until it hurts too much to stay the same. Um, yeah, and it is it is extraordinary to me the lengths we'll go to to ignore uh, pain and frustration as long as it's not too loud, and it's so hard. You know, to to not think about that in context of the quarantine, right? We've all just lived through this experience where I remember kind of joking with a friend and I I, um I adopted my cat three days before we went into lockdown. And I remember joking with a friend, Oh, this is great. He'll keep me company during the long cold months of the of the lockdown as a joke. (laughs) <laughs> and literally three days later, it started. And three months, three weeks later and three months later, I was actually living it. And it made me aware how completely I was tuned out to the reality that was happening around me and the impending situation, right? We we were hearing the news stories and everything. And it just wasn't real to me. Yes,
1: this couldn't happen, yeah.
3: That makes me think of the other… Um, I can't say that it started last year, but sort of flared up again, at least came into people's consciousness. It's just the killing of so many black bodies um, by police, and and that in itself is a legacy of a much longer way, centuries-long catastrophe of the enslavement of black bodies in many ways, not just the bringing them over from Africa, but also in prisons. And it's, it's a catastrophe that is felt by those who, who are involved, but for those who aren't, and there is a lot of normalcy to that. Um, and that's what in many
1: ways I think makes it very hard to address and very hard to change. Well, you really can see that if we mix this bias, which, by the way, some, the one dimension of it people call optimism bias, like, oh, everything will work out, right? It, it can't be that bad, but you mix that with the comfort and complacency bias we talked about in the last episode, and you can imagine for a whole lot of people who aren't touched by uh, police brutality – they just say, oh, this is just the normal baseline, and then it becomes part of just the way things are uh, for them. Not so easy for people who are suffering from it.
4: This makes me think, too, about uh, how a catastrophe is so much bigger than just one person's experience, right? And how um, that desire for, what well, my own st- – so I, I mean, it tips into comfort bias, too, but my own sense of stability – Let me not think about systems where white supremacy rules Mm. the roost because this is uh, gonna—it's just too big for me to think about, and I'm just one person. And uh, whether it's it's systems of injustice, uh, climate change, that they they all feel so big, and my participation feels so minute to actually shift the course of these these huge avalanches of some going back centuries and some going back longer than that. Uh, I think I'm at the, I'm at the limits of my own ability to even express just, I can feel it in my body, just the, the, the catastrophe bias, just the overwhelm that can take place and how to, how to hold that without tipping over into um, going back to comfort or trying to minimize uh, catastrophe. Like well, you know, it'll end eventually. Um, so, That's other people's work. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's making any sense, but I can feel the overwhelm even in just trying to express and articulate how it makes me feel to have this
1: discussion. Um, Paul, when you talk about how you can't even express it, I think that's a sign we're tapping into a bias (laughs) Uh, because our brains work to take catastrophes seriously and they they don't work. They're just not set up for these long-term Oh, maybe parts of our brains are set up, but our bodies aren't set up, right? Uh, and then when we start to, our brains start to take seriously how terrible climate change could be, or the fact that I'm eating 400 calories more per day than I really need, where is that going to lead? Or the fact that, you know, I'm smoking cigarettes and, and, uh, I'm young and that'll never be a problem, right? The, the timeframe, uh, everything just makes it easy for us to be numbed and to consider what we're doing okay, normal, a baseline, and there won't be any bad consequences. You know, this to me is one of the great values of contemplative practice because to the degree that we do slow down and we do, in a sense, open our minds to the things that aren't obvious, uh, and especially if we know that a bias like this exists, it can become a place that part of our examine is. What are the little things that are happening that could become big things? And and yeah, I, I, that's one of the great values of of having a spiritual practice.
2: I appreciate you saying that, Brian, because it leads me to think about how contemplative practice can also create more space in us to hold sadness and grief. Yes. And I feel like we can't, I would love to hear everyone else's thoughts on this. I, I feel like we can't really um, open our eyes to the magnitude of what's going on, if we don't have a space to hold, the yes, just the profound sense of of loss and sadness that comes with yeah, it. Yeah,
3: I, I would add, and it's related that contemplative practice also helps us know that we're not alone. And I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get um, to even try to it, begin to think of how I as an individual might address. A catastrophe is because it isn't I as an individual who can address a catastrophe, yes, and in contemplation, we learn that that the oneness that we are is a oneness of wholeness of a whole body of the earth and 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 God, and that's where we we rely on and we allow God to work through us, and then if we can do that, then we can take you know whatever our next step is and what is ours to do. But when we just come at it as if it's, I have to take care of this all by myself, so I'm just going to shut down, you know. Then, then that's I think when we we really really fall prey to the catastrophe Mm. bias.
4: That that's beautiful, and I think that speaks right to the heart of me. I think I have that as a complex in some ways, where I feel like it's up to me. I can get into that 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 like savior complex, Um, and this is part of why a contemplative rhythm is so helpful for me to have know that there's space that I'm, I'm coming from and space that I'm going to, where it is tapping into the body of Christ, which is an image that wasn't really used much for me growing up, but has become one of those central pieces that helps me know, um, and how quickly I forget, helps me know that it is not just up to me, but I am a part of this incredible fabric, uh, this, this, this cosmic web of, uh, of those also on this journey. So let's take a moment to center ourselves and explore the prayer that we will use for the catastrophe bias.
1: Holy light who illumines what is real. Help me to see danger that is all the more threatening
2: because it unfolds gradually. And likewise,
4: help me to see possibility that is easily missed.
3: Because it emerges slowly and suddenly.
2: Grant me, I pray, the long view. So cash bias is next. Our brains are wired to see within the framework of our economy and we see what helps us make money. It's very hard to see anything that interferes with our way of making a living. So question for everyone, where do you see this bias at work and do you see it overlapping with catastrophe bias? Well,
1: climate change sure is an easy example. I mean, the biggest industry in the history of humanity is the fossil fuel industry. There has never been an industry that big. And, and so we just can't even imagine the world going on without it. And, uh, uh, and I guess, uh, so that just feeds in then with catastrophe bias. Uh, our economic system uh, won't let us see uh, what uh, what uh, is an inevitability uh, and and we it just keeps us trapped,
2: yeah, it's interesting for me, a little bit of self-disclosure here. I grew up in what's commonly known as the prosperity gospel. so kind of health and wealth. Um, met a lot of big, famous celebrity pastors who lived in mansions. and my own pastor lived in a mansion, raised Arabian horses, and we knew people that had private jets and whatnot. And that was um a big part of our um, that was a big part of our normal. That was the sign of God's blessing was that you were super duper rich. And what was really interesting was in this particular environment how cash bias and catastrophe bias worked together because another thing that was a part of that environment as I grew up in it was a lot of apocalypticism. So we were always convinced that the world was ending, mm-hmm. and so that was all the more justification to accumulate wealth so that you could survive the coming catastrophe. And unfortunately, it created this mentality where it's kind of like, well, just make sure you and your family are taken care of because everyone else is going to be eating each other and you need to defend your your stash uh, to survive. Mm-hmm. And it is an interesting, it's interesting to think about how that ripples out ethically, ethically and how it teaches you to treat other people and the world around you. Yeah
1: my goodness uh now i'm thinking just what a miracle it is you survived and you're still here with us uh, there (laughs) might be an alternate
2: universe where i'm a a billionaire preacher so (laughs) (laughs) and your your
1: gold-plated
4: bible is a giveaway too those are your roots i
2: didn't realize you could
4: see that sorry
3: (laughs) (laughs) i have a, a personal example um both personal catastrophe and personal cash bias. Um, in 2008, I lost my job. And in 2009, I ran out of money and I ended up being homeless for six years. So that's the the personal catastrophe. And there were, there are ways in which I kind of jumped into it. I think of Joseph Campbell saying, if you're falling, dive. Mm. So so I, I knew it was coming. So I, I welcomed it as a way of practicing trust and so i never i was lucky i never ended up on the street i was able to find places to stay with friends or they were friends of friends etc um and it was a long struggle with god you know about what where am i meant to go What what is this all about but i also even as i learned to become more simple and to be less attached to money i was still attached to money mm-hmm. um and the story that I think most exemplifies that is, I was still working as a spiritual director and before then I didn't, I didn't get paid, but I needed money, so I got paid. And I had one directee who um, had an autoimmune disease. And we, had, we were scheduled to meet that day and I could tell I was coming down with a cold. And so I had to, make, try, to make, try to make a decision of, you know, I really need this money. And I I couldn't make the decision. And so I knew I wasn't supposed to see her, but I couldn't make myself do that. So what I did was I called her and told her I I had a cold. So if we didn't, just let me know if we don't want to meet. So I put it on her to do the decision that I couldn't make because I knew I needed the money. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. Learning how to see will continue in a moment.
0: Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage.
1: I just think this, this the power of money and the power of all the assumptions that go underneath it, that time is money, um, or that the amount of money you have or make determines how much value you have, or the, uh, the idea that, that work that you don't get paid for, or the work that you get paid for little is either easier or less important than work that gets paid a lot. I mean, when you know, when you think about how hard work is, it has nothing to do with how much money people get from it. Yet, it affects our values so much. And and to try to imagine ourselves being liberated from the assumptions that come with our culture and its and its centuries of accumulated uh, 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 value system. Oh my goodness! It 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 really does feel like something that we have to be saved from, liberated from. Uh, we we need sort of uh, I, I, I'm thinking about the prosperity gospel, Mike, and we need like a liberation from greed mm-hmm. and a liberation. And it's but it's not just even greed; it's the way that the money economy affects the poorest people too, because of the the way it makes us see ourselves, the way it makes us see the earth. I, you know, I. I because I, I love the outdoors, I, I I remember several years ago, being in the mountains of, of Pennsylvania, looking at this beautiful mountain, and then it just hit me, there are people who look at this mountain and they think, how many board feet of lumber are on this mountain that we could cut down all these trees, and then if we scraped off the mountain, how many tons of coal are in this mountain that we could extract, and and and. I, for a second, I could imagine seeing the world in that way, and then that's when it got scary because I thought, how many other things am I seeing mm-hmm. that way?
4: Gosh, that's so helpful i this, The story of money and the story of God seems so different, right like the the abuse and use of money of things not being valuable just for their own sense of being um but but what can you extract or what can you use or sell for? versus what i think of like the story of god of of community of of the beauty of of presence and being and uh sharing that these these elements uh i think there's moments where they can weave together but there's also times where they're so far apart where if you are only looking for ways to extract uh value it's a story that that has very clear winners and losers and i feel like so much of our whether it's pay inequality or the, the the gap between the wealthiest and those living uh in poverty it's it's a story of money and what is those of us who are participating in what we hope to be the story of god how, how do we speak to that and i feel like this bias helps us gives language to do so with confidence
2: i i appreciate that paul you know i think something that i've longed for my entire life possibly because of my prosperity gospel upbringing is someone who could give a good spirituality of money um, and just just introduce a healthy way to interact with it. Because I know for me, I I went from one extreme to the other. I, I At a certain point in my life, I deconstructed the prosperity gospel early. And then since then, I've had a lot of years where there was a sort of resentment and reluctance and fear around money for me, whereas I never kind of wanted it around because I was so much reacting against what I had experienced as kind of excesses and abuses, and i and I don't know that I've ever gotten there and found that kind of real healthy relationship with it and the real healthy teaching in interacting with it i 'm thinking about
3: those words from Jesus about hating money and loving God. Obviously, money was necessary even for Jesus. I remember the the story about him about the taxes paying taxes. Mm-hmm. The Gospels say that there was a group of wealthy women who funded his ministry. Why do you think Jesus used such strong language of hate and love? That's a juicy question.
1: You know, I'll just say there's something growing older where you, you, it just takes decades to see how powerful money is. And, uh, and also, you know, when I was a young man and, newly married my wife and I had four kids uh, right away. So my primary focus was how can I get enough money to keep my kids <laughs> fed and with shoes and all the rest, right? So there's a sense, uh, in, at least in my life when I was young, I, hadn't, I, I just was always in need of money. I didn't have time much to philosophize about it. But you get older and you're not in that mode anymore and you start seeing the power of money in politics, Uh, You know, I've heard different numbers from eight to 23 families own as much wealth as half the people in the world. And when you let that sink in, you don't just think of the money, but you think of the power. How many politicians can those powerful families buy? How many hours of commercial time can they buy for the politicians that they want to support who will help them make even more money and not care about the poor, right? Suddenly you realize that accumulation of money in politics, and then you think, and in religion, uh, any of us who've ever been pastors know, you know, your five wealthiest donors in your congregation, if you preach the sermon that maybe is the one they really need to hear, uh, you're the next day having to lay off some of your staff or maybe having to look for another job yourself. So... You know, you get older, you live long enough, and you just realize, yeah, money money's power goes so, so far. And yet, you realize why people don't want to talk about it. It's because it's so powerful.
4: Mm. Yeah, and that attached... Go ahead, Mike. I. Th- just- <laughs> Sorry.
3: That was me, but go ahead, Paul. I got the <laughs>
4: camera. I was just thinking about the attachment to money as, a, as like the... Being attached to money as the outcome or your your sense of well-being or your your blessedness or belovedness how much that shapes your interactions and if it's if there's if love if the love of money is what's driving those outcomes you're going to just miss out on those you're shoulder to shoulder with and this may be a, a very an overly simplistic example, but I was saying before we started recording that, I, was, I went on a run around my neighborhood today. And like, I go through a couple of different neighborhoods where there's uh, more low-income housing and then there's uh, the, the wealthier parts. And when I run through the low-income uh, housing area, uh, there's a lot of waving and saying hello to one another and everyone's outside. And then in the, the, the wealthier neighborhoods, there's more uh, big walls you actually can't see over and, and it's more self-protective. And I just think about um, what goes into the accumulation where one can actually be so self-protective that the outside world doesn't have as much effect in their reality versus having to build a sense of a community and interaction with whoever comes into your, your locale. Um, that it just made me think about how uh, the pursuit of that outcome, that love of that outcome becomes more of isolating than it does generative hmm. for a lot of folks not everyone but I think that to me that's part of that why that language is so strong because it's much harder to have that generative approach as you have to protect more and more what you've accumulated in your own storehouse
3: in the example that comes to me I'm going to use the word attachment to money instead of love of hmm. money um, because I, I think of two things one I, I graduated from, from Columbia Law School in 1988 and this was the, the time when Wall Street, this is right before one of those Wall Street crashes in 1989. Mm. Um, and everyone was telling us in law school, go go to a law firm, go make money. And it was like it was the beginning of just of people getting out of law school and making triple, triple digits, like over $100,000 a year. And they would spend their whole lives inside the law firm. And there was one law firm that had cots for their associates to sleep on. Um, and I remember just talking to friends about you know well, i'm gonna do this now make this money now so that later I, I can pay off my loans and later i can do what i want mm-hmm. some of them did some of them didn't i also think of of friends who who they really love to do something but don't feel they can afford it because they don't see how they can make a living at it so they are in these jobs that they go through all their life that they hate but they have to make the money to live, and they don't see how they can do what they love and live. And to me, that is that dichotomy between between money and God is when you have to choose and you decide that doing what you hate is actually more important to your survival mm-hmm. than doing what you mm-hmm. love.
1: As you say that, Gigi, I don't know if this will stand up uh, to scrutiny, but the sentence that comes to my mind is the opposite of money isn't poverty. The opposite of money is God in this way, that money makes us say certain things have more value, less value, and certain things are worthless. But God loves everything, and God's love for everything gives it its inherent value. And that's where money distorts our way of seeing value, and to love God liberates our way of seeing value. So, I don't know, but that that. As you as you said that, it just sort of popped into my mind that maybe that's why Jesus <laughs> uses that kind of strong language.
3: You could say that to God. Everyone's pr- everyone and everything is priceless. <laughs> that's, <amazing. laughs> that's great. Well said. That's great.
2: I appreciate the complexity that you introduced in those comments too, Gigi. Because I I'm, I'm like thinking about this thing of of hating money and like, well, maybe you need to to let go of something so that you can then pick it up again later and have a better relationship with it. So I think about the Buddha or Francis who, who walked away from everything. But I also realized that they both walked away from wealth, so there were no debtors chasing them, right? They had the privilege to mm. walk away, and that's not the reality for everyone.
4: That's such a great point. Um, I'm wondering, as we think, uh, to put a, a practical twist on this, and I think some of the stories certainly speak to that, but for you all, what are some of the strategies for overcoming the cash bias that you could share? Well, one
1: of them is that we would all give some money to Mike for his new ministry because uh, he needs a jet and a Bentley. <laughs> but seriously, seriously, you know, I do think that's one of the values of the you know the old biblical practice of tithing—the sense that we we give—we understand that giving is a as much a part of life as earning and saving. Mm.
2: This is where we take an offering. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You've got the inborn instinct for it. <laughs> yeah,
3: I, I, you know, I, do, I give, so far I've given all my stimulus checks away because mm-hmm. I don't really need them. And I'm remembering um, I took a two-year program where we looked at the five major religions and I sort of took a deep dive into Jewish practices. And... This idea, of we could take a 21st century idea of gleaning, where um, farmers would have their harvest, and if anything was left, it, it was those who needed the food could come and pick it up. And so I remember looking and thinking about what would be a, a, a way of doing that for myself. And this was when, pre-COVID, when I would ride public transportation, and I was just like, let a dollar just fall out of my pocket and leave it on the seat. Um, mm. for someone to come and pick it up you know it's
4: beautiful I love, yeah
1: that's beautiful I,
4: I have a friend in town named chuck who uh lives in voluntary poverty and part of what he does uh cuz you know i've all these questions for him like how do you live this kind of you know he rides this old bike everywhere he dumps dumpster dives for food he he works but every all the money he he gets either gives away or he puts it into retirement so that once he gets retirement age, he can give it all away tax-free. Um, you know, his house is always unlocked, so anyone can come stay there. Just lives a very beautiful, radical life. And he said uh, he learned from Dorothy Day, who talked about just making 1% changes in the right direction. It's never these major things where it's like all of a sudden he went from, you know, a wealthy banker to uh, living in this, this Christ-like way or Franciscan way, but that he would make these 1% changes in the right direction. And then over the course of his life, he became who he is. And that's something that uh, our family has tried to do. I feel very far away from his example, but it's, it's been such a helpful model of not trying to uh, make a leap into uh, perceived sainthood, but to just own where I'm at right now and, and, and keep taking these steps in the right direction. And I love that gleaning Gigi, I'm gonna have to uh, tip my hat to you as
3: I I try that practice. Here's our prayer for overcoming, uh, asking for help to overcome this cash bias. Beloved one who loves me,
2: help me to hate money in comparison with you. And help me see in the love
4: of
3: money. The hidden root of all kinds of evil So that I may see and cherish what has true
2: value. Freely giving what I cannot keep. To gain what I cannot lose.
3: Any final comments about today's biases, catastrophe and cash? How do you feel in your hearts and bodies after this conversation?
1: I have to say, just from having the chance to talk about these with the three of you, I feel like, wow, we just created a little space where we we carved out some freedom from these biases. And and yeah, I, I just feel I feel so uh protected almost by Safe space to talk about these things,
3: and to piggyback on that, I, I think there's also a sense of permission, in some ways, permission to to take a little step against to go against one of these biases, just a even just a, an experiment to try it out.
4: Yeah, I think if there's, a, I think it's Richard Foster who has a line about to conform to a, a sick to conform to a sick society is to indeed make oneself sick, and this seemed like a, a healthy dose of stepping away from that and having. Mm. Uh, countercultural against the the grain uh, conversation of what of what it could be to, to what would that look like if we were to live in different directions?
2: Yeah, I appreciate it so much. Catastrophe and cash shape so much of my upbringing and to be able to hold this space with all of you and learn from all your insight is is very helpful and also empowering because they're so big it can feel overwhelming and and I, I leave this conversation feeling a little bit less helpless so thank you thank you thank you
1: well let's take a few deep breaths now and through prayer strengthen our desire to see what is true and real and there but hidden to us by our own biases we'll speak a line of the prayer so that you can then repeat it and then we'll have a few moments after the prayer for you to simply hold the desire to see.
2: Source of wonder, help us see with wonder.
3: Depth of mystery, help us find a light in truth so profound that they surpass all knowing. Fountain of compassion, help us see with compassion.
2: Bringer of justice, help us see with justice.
3: Revealer of truth, Help us see what is real.
4: Holy Wisdom, whose presence fills our ever-expanding universe, help our horizons ever to
1: expand. Light of glory, help us to see with humility and awe. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us in this important time of prayer. If you'd like to engage with these prayers or intentions even more, they're available on a sister podcast called Practices for Learning How to See. You'll find the link in the show notes.
0: Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.